for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. So we're going to be looking today at what it means to be the children of God. So we're going to be reading 1 John 3. I've, I've uh, put the verses up on the screen. I'm hoping you'll be able to read them uh, with me as we go through it. So 1 John 3 verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it, does not know, it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children... Do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. I feel like I drew the short straw today. I'm not going to lie. Because actually this text is challenging, yeah? It's a challenging text to us and it, it challenges us in certain ways. And so actually, as we read through it, there are some things that you might, I'm hoping that you might have read that, and you might question certain things about that. What? Anyone who sins is of the devil? That should maybe start to resonate something in you and, and, and lead you to question it. And we're going to look at those things today. So um, just as a kind of an introduction, really, um, as you may or may not know, I've got a wife and two lovely children. Edie's three, and uh, Jude is four months old. And I've always kind of thought that with me being a secondary school teacher and Claire, my wife, being a primary school teacher, I thought that I'd have the whole t- t- sort of parenting thing down to a, a fine art straight away. <laughs> people, who are, people who are older than me are laughing. Um, I, I, honestly, I, I was quite surprised. Um, through being a dad, I'm learning more about myself than I ever honestly thought I would learn about, about myself. And I'm humbled by my own shortcomings all the time as a parent on an almost daily basis. Just an example of that from this morning. It was half past six. It was my turn to get up with the kids this morning. Edie comes in. She stands right in front of my face, and I just can't be bothered to wake up. Um, I just couldn't be bothered. So I was like, can't you just go back to bed for a bit? No, Dad, it's morning time, she was going to me. So um, she then proceeded to tickle my feet until I got out of bed. Um, And she thinks it's really funny. There's certain things that she does that are really hilarious. So... um, she thinks it's really funny at the moment to call me Barney. She thinks she's really clever by calling me Barney. She thinks it's hilariously funny. And it made me realise how much I actually love it when she calls me dad. She calls me dad. So I've started to remind her we have this little conversation every time she calls me Barney now. And I say to her, Edie, you do realise it's only you and Jude that will ever get to call me, call me dad? Because we're not having any more. <laughs> And so that's what she should call me. And I keep saying to her, look, that's what you should call me. You should call me dad. And 
There's something in me. Every time she calls me dad, actually, she, she goes even further than that. She calls me my dad, which I think is even better. My daddy. It's so sweet. Sometimes you just almost want to cry and then, you know, tell her off. Um, <laughs> it made me just realise just how much I love her. Um, and I'm her dad and she's my daughter and it doesn't matter what she does and it doesn't matter what Jude will do when he gets a bit older. Whatever she does or says, I'm just going to keep loving her. I will keep loving her. With getting up countless times in the night, though, and having to constantly sit her on the naughty step for, for things that she does wrong, or having to clean up all manner of bodily fluids from your children, you do start to question. There are times when you question, why do I love this thing? So this morning, I put on a black shirt because I thought I'd look smart for you. Jude puked up all down me. And I was like literally walking around the house with this big wet stripe down me uh, earlier on. So why do I love my children so much? Why do I love them? I love them because they're mine. I love them because they're mine. They belong to me. I don't love them any more or any less depending on what they do. I love them because they're mine. And I delight in them. I take delight in them. I think they're great. Just the smallest things they do are great to me. So Jude rolled onto his side and nobody else saw it apart from me. And I was so excited. I took a photograph on it. And then the next day I broke my phone, so I haven't got it to show you. But I took a photograph of it because I was so excited. And the other day, Edie copied perfectly a capital letter E. I was so happy about it. I mean, to you and me, though, those things are kind of normal. We, we can, hopefully, we can roll onto our side, yeah? But I am so excited and delighted when they do something new for the first time. In chapter 3 of 1 John, John is quick to remind us of the fact that we're God's children, that we're his children. Just look at that first verse again. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Now, in our text, there's exclamation marks, and they wouldn't have been there in the original Greek. Um, but they are there because they're, they're there to emphasise that John is celebrating with joy that we're God's children. It's like there's an awestruck tone in his voice as he's writing it. He's trying to communicate something about how excited he is that we are God's children. See, if you're a Christian, you belong to God. You belong to him. You're his child. And we say that a lot. In fact, we've been singing most of the songs this morning we've sung have indicated something along those lines, that God loves us, that he died for us, that we're his children, that he loves us. Equally, we sing songs like, I'm I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. Or, you're a good, good father. But my question to you is, have you really grasped hold of that in your life? Have you really grasped hold of that and allowed that to really permeate into your being, that you belong to Jesus? What does it mean to you to be a child of God? What does it mean to you today to be a child of God? John writes that God has lavished his great love on you and that that love manifests in itself in in us being called children. Just think about that for a second. Let that resonate in your heart, that you are a child of God if you're in Christ this morning. God has lavished. That means he's poured his love onto you. He's not just given it to you in a small measure. He's poured his love onto you. He's lavished his love on you. God calls you his child. And that love is unchangeable. See, God can't change. God cannot change. His very nature is unchanging. It's it's in his very nature of who he is. Everything God was yesterday, he will be today and he will be tomorrow. He never changes Now, our moods change constantly. Our opinions change weekly. What is the news on BBC one day will not be the news the next. In fact, some days it changes more times than you can can notice. Just look at Theresa May's cabinet over the last two weeks. 
Yeah, it's changed more times than we can possibly comment on. Um, because everything changes all the time in our society. But God remains the same. God remains the same. Balak, uh, so Balaam says to Balak in Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. You see, God's not like us. He doesn't obey the rules that we have to obey. So we change constantly, but God doesn't change. From eternity to eternity, God remains the same. Tozer writes, Neither does God change his mind about anything. Today, at this moment, he feels towards his creatures, towards babies, the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. See, God doesn't change. He doesn't change. His feelings about you don't change. He loves you the same today as he will tomorrow, as he will in a thousand years' time when you're with him in glory. He loves you the same. He loves you the same. And he loves you with a love that's so great that it's hard to comprehend it. It's an unparalleled love. There's nothing quite like it in all of creation. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he tells them that he's praying for them, that they might grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. He's praying that they might somehow grasp in just a small measure how great this love that God has for us is. Because he knows that if they grasped hold of it, their lives would radically change as a result of it. There'd be something in them that would change as a result of getting hold of and grabbing hold of that great love that God has. So if God's love for us doesn't change, and leads Paul to write at the start of Ephesians that God has chosen us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So Paul's basically insinuating this, that God doesn't just love you yesterday and today. He loved you before he made the world. If that's true about us as Christians, why on earth do we get so hung up on trying to win God's affection all the time? Or so bogged down in our own failings? When if you think about it, knowing every rotten choice you've ever made, knowing, any, knowing every bad thing that you've ever done, everything you've said that you shouldn't have said, everything you've done that you thought was a secret, God still chooses to love you anyway. I mean, that's mind-blowing, isn't it, yeah? This morning, God loves you so much, it doesn't matter what you've done, God still loves you the same. And uh, that should draw us into worship. And it drew us to worship this morning as we were singing those songs today. It's this thought that God loves us it doesn't matter what we've done. God loves us the same. And it's not just his love that he lavishes on you. He chooses to make you his child. Because it's like bigger than just he loves you. He chooses to make you his child. He brings you into his family. He says, hey, do you know what? You can become mine. You can become part of the family. You see, we're part of a family. We've just talked about that a second ago. As Angela spoke to us, we're part of a family here at Gateway. We're part of a diverse family of believers. I look around the room and I know that there are people here from different nations, from different social backgrounds, doing very different jobs. But yet we've been called together as a family. We've been called together as children of God. Peter writes in one of my favourite verses of the Bible, You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. God's special possession. I mean, how great is that? You, today, are God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. We're chosen. We're loved. We are children of God. You are his special possession. 
And we have an inheritance as sons kept in heaven for us. Now, whenever the Bible talks about sons, it does include the ladies as well, okay? Um, I heard somebody say, we all have to put up with being called sons of God as men have to be put up with being called the bride of Christ, yeah? It's, <laughs> it's one and the other. We're all sons, so I'm going I'm to talk about being sons today. It's everybody. It's for all of us. And we have a hope, as John puts it. You see, we have this hope that one day Christ will appear and we're going to be with Christ forever. It's that hope that Jean had, yeah? It's the same hope. We have a hope that we will be with God forever. An expectancy that one day all of this will pass away and we'll be with Jesus, our brother. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe it? Are you living in a way that would testify to that truth in your life, that you are a child of God, that one day you are going to meet Jesus? You see, if you do, and this is what John's getting at, it should change something in you. It should change something in you. The lies that you're not good enough or you're capable enough or worthy enough, they should vanish in the, in the face of that love. So John starts with the fact that we're God's children, but he doesn't end with it, does he? There's some of that chapter that we read there that's quite complicated. He starts with it for a reason, you see. What he does is he's starting because he's building from that point and he's building from this base point that we're God's children now. It's not about what we do to earn God's approval. We start with the fact that we are God's children. It's the start and not the end of your faith that you are a child of God. Your sonship isn't dependent on you. It's all on him. All the work, all the effort of Christ on your behalf. Verse 5 comments on that when, when, it's, when John says this, but you know that he appeared so he might take away your sins. You see, God turned up in the flesh God became man and appeared so that he might take away your sins. Jesus appeared to take away your sin that you might be called a child of God. In human adoption, sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes a parent adopts a child and decides that they've bitten off more than they can chew, that the child's too hard work. And they go, do you know what? I'm going to send them back to where they came from. Do you know what? That actually happens. I'm not making it up. That happens. There are children who are fostered or adopted who end up getting sent back because the parent decided that they'd bitten off more than they could chew and they send them back again. You see, often in in a human adoption, the only way that it's successful is for one of two things to happen. Either the child performs at a certain level of expectation, there's a certain list of rules that they need to follow, or the parent says... Do you know what? No matter what this kid's done, because children who are adopted often have had really difficult backgrounds, no matter what this child's done, no matter what this child continues to do, I'm going to keep loving this child unconditionally. I will choose to love them. I will keep loving them. That's what God does with us. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. You see, your adoption as a child of God is utterly permanent. Nothing can separate you, Paul writes, in all of creation from the love of Christ. The only performance relevant to your salvation is the performance of Jesus on your behalf. So if that's true, and it is, that's truth. If that's true, why does John talk so much about not sinning? Like, it's bizarre, isn't it? You think about it from one perspective. You've just said that, you know, I'm saying to you, God loves you. God loves you, God loves you. Why does then Paul talk about not sinning? In verse 4 to 8, he writes, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. 
and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So he writes these verses, and these are challenging. And here I think John is actually addressing people who'd been deceived by false teaching of Jesus' work for us. He says, because he says, doesn't he, dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. And, and this teaching essentially was this, that, well, Christ has fulfilled the law, so I can do what I like. Christ has fulfilled the law, I can do whatever I like. And um, there's a, a wordy term for that, and that's antinomianism. And that basically means anti-law. It basically means you live in a way that's anti the moral law of God. There were Christians doing whatever they wanted because they believed that they could. So in our culture, it might look something like this. I'm going to go out every Friday, Saturday, Sunday night and get absolutely banjaxed off my face on alcohol. I'm going to do whatever I like. I'm going to give my body over to whoever I want to give my body over to because, hey, I'm a child of God, so it doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to say what I want about who I want and when I want. I'm going to gossip. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to steal. I'm going to effectively do everything I want and everything I wanted to do before I was a Christian. Because, hey, I'm saved. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm a child. I've got my ticket, so it doesn't matter. That's antinomianism. So that's anti-law. And we can still be tricked into that way of thinking today. We're not immune from it 2,000 years later. Maybe God's speaking to you as I've said that, and maybe you've deceived into yourself of that way of thinking, that it doesn't matter really what you do. So that's verses 4 to 8. That's that kind of cheap grace thing. Richard spoke about it two weeks ago as well. Cheap grace. You know, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm saved anyway. And, Paul, and John's saying, no, that's not how it is. Secondly, there's verses 9 and 10. And I think that there's something else that he's trying to pinpoint here as well. Verses 9 and 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them and they cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So what's he saying there? Well, he seems to contradict actually something he said in the first chapter. right? So if you read the whole of 1 John, you'll find that in the first chapter, John says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I mean, that sounds totally different from what I've just read to you. So what's he getting at? Well... Most people who have read this like, will come up with different opinions, but the, the, the kind of the train of thought of people like, say, like John Stott, if anybody knows who he is, is this. The, the sin that John is talking about here is ongoing, continual, habitual sin. It's the sin of effectively knowing, knowing who God is, but rejecting him and rejecting the work of God and, and of Jesus. It's that sin. It's that habitual, continual sin. It's the rejection of the things of God. Notice he says no one who is born of God will continue to sin. And he's, what he's getting at is, is that continual sin. So if after claiming to become a Christian, you carry on living actively a life of sin and rejecting any sort of obedience to God, do you really belong to Christ, is what John's saying. If after becoming a Christian, you carry on living the life you lived beforehand, do you really know him? You know, he says, John, John puts it, have you seen him and known him? Or are you still effectively just a non-believer? Because, and this is the truth of it, and this is the hard truth of it, 
You could come to church your whole life. You could say that you're a Christian and not be one. That's the truth. In Romans, which is what Richard just read earlier on, and I'm not, Richard didn't know I was going to say this. Okay, so God's speaking this morning. In Romans, Paul says that salvation is confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believing in our hearts that he rose again from the dead. You see, there's two parts to that. It's not one-sided. You can't just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and not believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead. Because actually, salvation only occurs when you do both. Salvation only occurs when you say in your heart, Jesus rose from the dead. It's only then that new life will come into you. It's only then that the new life that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about in John 3 will come into you when you proclaim that Jesus is risen in your heart. And you've proclaimed with your mouth that he is Lord. So how do we know then that we're children of God? Because this is what John gets at, right? So how do I know that I'm a child and not one of those people who's still living in sin? Spurgeon said that works are the fruit of grace. Works are the fruit of grace. True belief, true sonship leads to action in our lives. Whilst our sonship isn't is unmerited, it isn't an excuse to continue to live as outsiders, but it's an invitation to follow after Jesus. John says that we need to purify ourselves just as he is pure. Um, I'm going I'm to do this. Terry Virgo, I've heard Terry Virgo speak on this. And do you remember, we, we, there was a really old song, and it used to be, purify my heart. And Terry says, it, it's almost like actually God is saying back, no, purify yourselves. Because there's actually a point in which we sometimes expect God to do all the work for us. But actually what John's getting at here is that we need to do something as well. That we need to actually take action in our lives to purify ourselves. You see, the apostles lived in a way that eagerly expected Jesus to return at any moment. When John's writing this, he's writing in a way that he would expect Jesus to turn up the next day. 2,000 years later, it's really easy to fall into the trap of believing it won't happen in your lifetime. I mean, how many times this week, honestly, have you thought that Jesus might turn up today? Yeah? Probably not a lot. I mean, I haven't. I did when I was writing this, actually. I was like, oh, gosh, maybe he's going to turn up now. Um, But like a bride getting ready on her wedding day, John encourages us to be ready for the coming of Jesus. Purify yourselves, John writes, because he's coming. Be ready for him. The bridegroom is on his way. Get ready. Get ready for him. A bride on her wedding day, she doesn't sit on the sofa for five hours, eating rubbish and watching Strictly reruns. Yeah, she doesn't do that. She gets her bridesmaids round. They do her hair and her nails and her makeup. Claire's even got a dressing gown from when she was a bridesmaid for somebody else because it's like a big thing, isn't it? You get ready. You prepare yourself. You, you clean up. You look sharp because it's your wedding day. And John's saying to us in a similar way that we as the bride of Christ need to be ready for his coming. Be ready for Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we purify ourselves? Well, we follow Jesus. We follow his example. We learn how he lived and we live for him. We pursue him in prayer and in reading the Bible. How many times have you done that this week? Just to challenge you. The more fervently we pursue Christ, the more we become like him. The more fervently you pursue something, the more you you, you get into it, the more you become like it. If I spend all my time with Claire, I start rubbing off on her and she starts rubbing off on me in terms of what we say and how we think. And it's the same with Jesus. The more time you spend with Jesus, 
the more you will be like him. The Christian is not the one who says that he believes in Jesus. He's the one who follows Christ. And we've also been given authority as Christians to take authority over the things in our lives that we know aren't good. We need to put them to death. So when Paul writes in Colossians 3, since then you've been raised with Christ, and he goes on to say, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. He's saying something really important to us, that we need to put to death things in our life that we know don't honour Jesus. We need to put them to death. And that's me, that means taking action. That means doing something. It doesn't just mean purify me, God. It means actually I'm going to do something. I'm going to take steps in my own life to, to, to purify my heart. Before you were a Christian, sin, every time it called you, you had to answer it. It's like a phone that kept ringing. And it would keep ringing and 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 eventually you'd pick up. Eventually you'd just pick up. Now you're a Christian, the phone rings, but you can say, I'm not going to answer it anymore. That's what the work of grace does in your life. Grace teaches us to say no. Yeah? D.A. Carson, this is one of my favourite quotes. It wasn't actually that famous at the time that he wrote it, but it's become more and more popular. He, he writes this. It will come up on the screen, hopefully, in a second. People don't drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, towards prayer or obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. That's challenging. That's challenging. But it's true. It's true. Just because it's challenging doesn't mean it's not true. You see, we need to strive as Christians towards maturity in our thinking, towards holiness. And it's grace that enables us to do that. Grace enables us to walk in holiness. It doesn't free us from doing it. It enables us to do it. And you know what? The great thing is, we don't have to just do that on our own. You see, we've got the Spirit to guide us and to help us. So the Spirit empowers us to live as God's children. In the mind of the apostles, Peter in 1 Peter 2, Paul in Romans 8, and John both here in 1 John, and also in his gospel where he records what Jesus said about the Spirit in chapters 14 and 15. All three of them, all three of these these apostles believed that and taught that the Spirit was key to your walking as a Christian. They They were certain of it. They believed that God's Spirit in us plays a key role in both reminding us and confirming our sonship and empowering us to live as Christians. The Spirit glorifies Jesus And he draws us to him. That's his role. You see, the spirit glorifies the son and the son glorifies the father. So the spirit's role in your life is to draw you to Jesus. And he empowers us to to be witnesses of the love that we've received. So he gives us confidence and power to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. Peter's a, a fantastic example of that in the New Testament. So Peter's the guy who denies Jesus three times. Peter's the guy who gets it wrong all the time. 
And then Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit and stands up in front of people and about 8,000 people become Christians at one time. Yeah? Peter had a transformation because the Holy Spirit fell on him. The Holy Spirit fell on him and empowered him to witness. God's power in you, God's spirit in you can do the same thing. Paul writes in Romans 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You need the spirit. You need the spirit. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. You need him in your life. Um, we've been here a year now, and, and I, I, we've had a great time getting to know people in the church. And I have to say, you, you, there are so many great people in this church. And we've got to know some of your backgrounds as we've chatted to people and got to know people. And what we've found is, is that people in, at Gateway have come from very different places theologically. They've come from very different church backgrounds. Some people have come from Baptist backgrounds and they never talked about the Holy Spirit. And some people are ultra charismatic. And so whenever there's a Holy Spirit moment, they're straight up the front and they want to be baptised in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues. They want to have miracles. They want to see people raised from the dead every Sunday. They want it all, all the time. And then there's others of you who are like, this freaks me right out. This is weird. I don't want anything to do with this. This is really odd. Actually, to be honest with you, I'll leave it to them. They're the Holy Spirit people in this church. And I'll just turn up and just walk out of the room when it doesn't freak me out too much. Perhaps you're like that because you've never experienced it. Or perhaps you're like that because you had a bad experience of it. Um, about six years ago, we went up to... Do you remember Todd Bentley? Quite weird. Um, as a phrase. We went up to Dudley um, because there was a, a guy there who was, had been across to America. And I think some of it was genuine. Claire and I went up one, one night um, with some guys at the church we were at. And there was a room of 400 people and they lined us all up to pray for us. And uh, the guy came around, he laid his hands on us. And Claire and I didn't feel nothing, so we didn't move. So there's this whole room of people and there's Claire and I standing there looking at each other. The only people standing up and everybody else has fallen over. The guy tried to push me onto the floor. He came back and prayed for us a second time and he hit me so hard in the head, I had a red mark on my forehead because he tried to push me over. And I looked around at Claire and said, if this isn't genuine, I ain't budging. And she said the same thing. <laughs> See, it's important that you recognise, yeah, that these things do happen. And do you know what was the funny thing was? Afterwards, Claire spoke to the lady next to her and she said, oh, I just fell over because everybody else did. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's like... So I can understand and I can, I can understand and empathise with people who've had a bad experience of, of maybe being filled with the Spirit or a bad ex- experience of the things of the Spirit. But you mustn't let bad experiences rob you of the truth of Scripture. You mustn't let it rob you of the truth of Scripture. Because Paul says in Ephesians that we must keep being filled with the Spirit. So if Paul says that to you, and we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed, do it. Be filled with the Spirit. You see, because it's the Spirit in you that is God's voice in you, reminding of who you are. It's the Spirit in you that confirms your sonship in God. 
that you're his son, that you're his daughter, that he loves you, that he's pleased with you. It's the spirit in you that teaches you, that teaches you what's good in your life and what needs changing. You see, the spirit empowers you to live for Jesus and he helps you to walk in obedience. He stands with us as we say no to sin and he highlights things in us he wants to change. The spirit helps us. He draws alongside us and draws us to Jesus and he's got some amazing gifts for us, but that's, that's a whole other subject. You see, you need his presence. You need his presence today, this week. You need the presence of Jesus in your life. You need the presence of the, presence of the counsellor. You need the Holy Spirit in you, speaking to you, confirming his voice in you. So in a minute, I'm going to challenge you. We're going to stand up and we're going to pray together. And I'm going to ask you to join with me in inviting the Holy Spirit just to come and fill you for the week ahead. Now in that moment... It might be that something happens to you, you might feel something, or you might not. But I want you to claim it and believe that God has actually met with you and filled you with his spirit and that that something is taking place. Because Jesus said this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give you a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give you a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Is it Julia, your daughter? Julia prayed for a horse and a dog. God provided a horse and a dog. If you ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you, he will fill you. Because we've got a good, good father. Okay? Um, So, before we do that, just before we do that, um, I've got a couple of things I just wanted to say as well. Maybe when I spoke earlier on about sin... Today, you thought, man, that's me. That is totally me. I'm doing all sorts of rubbish I know I shouldn't do. I'm engaged with stuff that nobody in this church knows about. I am doing stuff in secret that is not good. If that's you, you've got a saviour today. Jesus is here today for you. John writes in chapter one that you should confess your sins. And so my challenge to you today isn't just to confess your sins to God on your own, but it's to confess your sins to somebody else. So what I'm going to say to you today, if that's you, if you feel that God is nailing something in your heart and your life right now, that you find one of the elders, your small group leader, or somebody who knows you, and you confess your sin to them. Because it's only at that moment that the power of sin in your life will get broken. The power that the devil has on you will break as you confess your sin. And as we expose things to the light, the light shines in and fills the void. And also, maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. Um, But some of the things I've said, or all of the things I've said, are making you want to take a next step. Maybe the next step for you is talking to the person you came with this morning. Maybe the next step for you is maybe finding out a little bit more. And so what I just encourage you again to do is to talk to one of the people who look like a leader today. You can come and speak to me if you want to. You can come and speak to Richard or Graham, my dad, uh, anybody. Come and find somebody and talk to them about where you're at with your faith, your walk in Christ at the moment. Um, because you, you can experience the love of God. You can experience the love of the Father on your life. Okay, so what we're going to do now is Andy and the band are going to come up, if that's all right. If we do that, let's just stand, and I'm going to pray for you that God's Spirit will fill you now and equip you for the week ahead. Lord Jesus. Let's just lift out our hands to him. Let's just receive to him. It's not a magical thing that happens when we do that, but it's like saying to God, God, I just want to meet you. 
God, I want more of you. When we lift out our hands to him, we are not, uh, it's not like some sort of magic potion taking place, okay? But it's just saying, Jesus, come and meet with me. Jesus, I'm open to your filling. Jesus, I'm open to receiving from you. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, right now, Holy Spirit, come upon this room with your presence. Come and fill us for the week ahead. Lord, we want to be filled with the presence of God. We don't want to be empty. We don't want to run on empty, God. We want to be filled with your presence. Jesus, we want to be filled with your presence. Holy Spirit, come right now. Come and invade all the gaps in our hearts. Holy Spirit, come and fill us to overflowing with your power from on high right now. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. You might be feeling his touch from you right now. You might be feeling his presence on your hands, on your heart. He's here this morning. He's here. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there he will be. The Holy Spirit is here. Holy Spirit, keep coming. Holy Spirit, come right now, I pray. Come and invade our lives. Lord, make us, make us help us, Lord Jesus, in our, in our walk with, with you, Holy Spirit, this week. Would you empower us to live for him who died for us? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Lord Jesus. Come, Jesus. Shall we?